When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Hello, everybody. It's Melissa. I am back and I have a very exciting guest today on the pod to talk to. Um, She is an Australian drag queen, super fabulous. Uh, Her name is Onda Spectrum, which I love. (laughs) And uh, we're just going to chit chat today about her life as a autistic queen and other things, other interesting things about Onda. So welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello, everyone. I'm very thrilled to be here. I've not been interviewed for a podcast before, so this is quite um, exciting. Really? Aww. Yeah, no, no. This is my, this is my first time. I'm very, You're a podcast I listen to virgin. podcasts a lot, so I'm like, it's weird to be like on the other side of that. On a podcast. On the podcast. Yeah. On the podcast. <laughs> uh, I can't get over how adorable you are. You're so cute. I love your dimple. You're just like so yeah. cute. And the accent, of course, is like all- Americans are obsessed with Australian accents. I don't know if you know that. I have heard, yes. Although, <laughs> do how how Australian do I sound? You sound you? pretty Australian. Okay. Why? I, a lot of people in Australia don't think I sound very Australian. They think I have, I think it's that typical autistic professor speak. Like some people think I'm English because oh. I, unlike a lot of Australians pronounce most of my words correctly. Like if the letters are there, I'll try and say all of them. Mm-hmm. Um. So yes. So it's, it's nice to know that I do sound Australian to people outside of Australia. That's fun. Yeah, totally. You definitely do to me, at least. Um, so yeah, let's talk a bit about your uh, your career as a as a drag queen. I know you're kind of from. I just said as we were kind of talking before the podcast that I've been a little bit stalking your Instagram and sort of just watching some of your performance videos and stuff. And I saw that you're kind of a baby queen. How long have you been doing drag? I started drag in January of last year. So yeah. almost two years now. So you're about to have your drag anniversary. Yes, which will be. I need to um, do something for that. Yeah, that's cool. That. So, how did you get into drag? It's kind of like, I feel like it's sort of a niche thing to get into. Um, it's. I've always wanted to do it. I remember watching 
YouTube videos of drag queens performing when I was in high school. So that's uh, over 10 years ago now. Um, and so I knew that it was a thing people did. I had seen a few drag queens perform here and there. Um, I also, alongside autism, I also have ADHD. So I'm not very good at doing things that I want to do. And I sort of think about, oh, yeah, that'd be nice to do. And then I don't necessarily get around to do it for ages. Um, so I started drag at 27. Um, and I think it was after being in the lockdowns. Um, so I'm from Melbourne. So obviously we were the most lockdown city in the world. So after all of that, I thought, what, just do it. Why not? Like I've always wanted to. Um, I, I think a benefit of starting older is that I had more experience behind me in terms of I knew what I wanted to do on stage. I didn't just want to be a drag queen. I wanted to be a specific type of performer. Um, and I also, had more money behind me than I would when I was, had I started at 20, I wouldn't have been able to afford things. So I spent possibly more than I should have on my first drag performance for what I made, but I enjoyed that I was able to buy like the proper things and really start from a good spot, I think. But otherwise I've always, in terms of actually like doing drag, I've never been able to listen to a song and not imagine myself performing it. Like I can't just listen to music. I so, again, I know this is very, I keep trying to like relate it to autism things of the podcast. I don't have an internal monologue. So I think in pictures. So I find that songs become my internal monologue in a way, and they become a way of putting like feelings into words and I can associate what I want to do with songs so I've always sort of imagined that and always had this idea of like lip syncing performing so I think that was just the a natural progression to doing drag because that's exactly what it allows you to do yeah oh my gosh yeah I find that very relatable um many of the things that you just said um as a performer myself not a drag performer but I am an aerialist and I've been doing that for 10 years and I really relate to like the song thing where it's like, I, there are certain songs where I can't really imagine myself performing to, but like a lot of songs that come on, if I'm like really feeling it, it's like in my head of like the picturing like, Oh, what I would do there and how I would work this and whatever. So yeah, I definitely, definitely relate to that. It's funny to hear you say like you started late at 27, but I know like, in the performing arts world, like once you're getting close to 30, I feel like people feel like they're getting like too old because a lot of people in performing arts start so young, you know, they're doing it from childhood, from when they're a teenager and uh, you're still so young though. So I know I, I'm, yeah, I'm not relative to the world. Yes. I am still quite young. Um, I, I guess I see it as that most Queens are, um, particularly in Australia, because we can drink from 18. So most of them are 18, 19, 20, so they can get into the clubs and start performing from that age. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, there's a slight difference between you, me and my cohort of other baby queens in terms of age. And also, um, as I'm, I, I'm just getting so tired as I get older. Most shows don't start till 10. And I like if you have any sort of day job in the morning, it's not... Uh, 
always that easy to facilitate the performing until one in the morning and then you've got to get up in six or seven hours so yeah there is quite a I feel it being slightly older yeah I was gonna actually ask about that because I know um you are getting or maybe by now you have gotten your PhD or you're very close to getting your PhD yes it's I think I'm unofficially a doctor I think I know it's been all accepted by the university um, they, they send an email saying it just has to be formally conferred and ratified. And I know from past friends who have graduated, I get an email one day that will be addressed as doctor. Ugh. So I'm just waiting for that. Email. Like that's the last bit of admin to happen. So I think I'm technically finished, but not, I want like the formality and the completion of this is definitely finished. So I'm waiting until that point, but yes, I do. I have a PhD. Yeah, that's incredible. As someone who sort of looked into taking that path at one point in my life, I know for a fact, like how much work that takes. And that's incredible. And congratulations. And I'm like, if I ever achieve that, I would make everyone call me doctor just because I'm like, damn, I earned this title. <laughs> so we'll just call you Dr. Spectrum next time I talk to you. Um, yeah, you know that. I'll, I'll answer to doctor. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. So your doctorate is in what? Uh, is in sociology, uh, researching uh, healthy masculinity programs. Mm, I love that. Uh, there's been a lot of talk around masculinity the past few years. It's been a topic that I've heard about on like a lot of different podcasts that I've listened to and sort of like reframing masculinity and what it means to be a man and how toxic masculinity has, can sometimes like show up in weird places and ruin everyone's day. And <laughs> um, I think that's great. What do you, what type of work are you planning on doing? I know that's kind of probably an annoying question that you get all the time as someone who's pursuing their PhD and people are probably like, what are you going to do with your degree? But I have to ask, cause I'm curious. Yeah. It's such a weird thing because PhDs by default have to be quite niche and you have to really focus and it has to be something you're interested in. Cause if you, if you're not, like it won't be worth it if you're not interested in it because you will just want to give up. So it does have to be not only niche, but also enjoyable for you. So that means that it's not always inherently applicable to the real world outside of academia. Um, ideally, I'd love to work at a university as a researcher um, in any sort of field uh, that is increasingly unlikely after COVID, um, at least like within the immediate future. So any sort of policy research job um like as you said masculinity is sort of a hot topic at the moment so i'm hoping there'll be some non-for-profit looking for something yeah. in those areas soonish yeah um, yeah we'll see yeah whatever you're looking for you know it might just find you sometimes that's the way it goes where you're like you know i'm just gonna yeah. put my feelers out and the right thing will will come to me um yeah. So how, how is school for you? I know for myself personally, I've always found school very enjoyable and 
relatively easy on like the, the studying side of things. I'm also like a person who I love to research. I love to write. I love to read. I love to learn. Um, the social parts of school were what were always kind of uh, harder for me. That's what made school hard was like, you have to go with all of these other people and you have to know how to, what to say and how to act and who to be and um, all of that. So I'm wondering how school is for you as someone who has been in school for so, so, so many years. Yeah, I did the maths and it was nine years at uni. And I was like, oh, well, and I get, because I never set out to do a PhD and sort of did one by accident. Like I didn't really know what I was getting into when I started it. So it doesn't feel like that long because each step was like, oh, I guess I'll do this rather than it being nine years from the start mm-hmm. um school I guess I maybe had a different experience I think socializing for me was quite easy in high school because I learned how to mask really well early on and I knew and not um necessarily to my benefit and in many ways to my detriment that I presented a, a false version of myself for so long but I knew that people would respond to a camp overly gay character in like three or four ways. So it just made me feel like I had some sense of control over the world around me. So I just did this sort of performance and was like, here I am, this camp gay kid. So I found that quite easy to navigate. Um, The academic side, I didn't pay any attention to in high school. I had no academic interests. Um, I wanted to be an actor in high school, um, so I didn't pay any attention to anything. Um, yeah, I just I was like, oh, yeah, I don't, like, I remember thinking, I don't need any of this. I'm just going to get into an acting school and pursue this. Really? And then got out of high school and was like, oh, I actually don't know if I can be bothered. Like, I just sort of was like, oh, yeah. It's a nice idea, but like it's a, it was more work than I thought it was. I was like, oh, uni probably seems easy. I'll just do that instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Being an actor, that's a lot. If you want to like be successful at it, it's yeah, that's quite a, quite an undertaking for sure. Yeah. That's, that's kind of funny. Our contrasting experiences. I think me growing up in a different decade as you, cause I'm quite a bit older than you. Um, you know, I was going through elementary in the eighties and through high school in the nineties and being a female, um, there were, and still are, I think, I think like the gendered expectations for socialization are kind of shifting now, but like back then it was like girls were very much expected to act and behave and socialize in a very particular way as opposed to boys who are given a little bit more leeway and who are are like oh you know like oh he just wants to play by himself or he doesn't you know it's like I don't know how like how accurate that is to your experience growing up sort of later on than I did but um I definitely felt a lot more social pressures and like confusion about how things were supposed to be and like why it just seems so easy for everyone else. Um, so I'm glad for you that you had an easier time socially, but you're right. Like the masking 
can be extremely difficult and detrimental and it's hard to start unraveling all of that when you're finally ready and able to do so it's like oh who am I really under all of this facade that I've built you know so but you've been I guess do you feel like learning how to mask this might be a weird question I don't know do you feel like learning how to mask has like helped you as a performer at all I think so because I think I remember and I still kind of see now whenever I watch a clip of like someone acting and everyone's like oh they're doing such a good job I just see it as like but you can see that they're acting like it's to me it's all just masking and whenever I would do like acting exercises we were like, you sort of taught that you have to like find it within yourself and like do all the, like the inner work. And I was like, what, like you just pretend like, I just, I never understood that. And like how you can create a performance, like, well, you just do it. Like, that's what I just do every day is you just pretend and say, here's what I think's going to happen. And yeah, I think it's, I, I remember feeling Sorry, this is when I get like jumbled because I start a sentence and don't know where it's going to finish. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I got you there. That's the ADHD, right? <laughs> yeah, I just sort of start talking and think, oh yeah, we'll work it out in the end. <laughs> and then yeah, there's a 50-50 chance that'll happen. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> my pod, my 99% of my podcast is just me rambling on to myself and doing that half of the time. So yeah. you're in good company. Um, I, yeah, I think the, I remember this sort of working it out later around the acting is that what I actually liked about it is that it gave me a structured way to socialize. Mm -hmm. So we got a script, so I didn't have to work out what to say. I didn't, wasn't going to jumble. We got, and then we got to rehearse it even better. I didn't have to make a fool of myself. We got to practice it and work out what we were going to do. And I knew what everyone else was going to say. And then the best part is that we had a director. So I had someone telling me what to do. I didn't have to make any decision but I still got to feel like I was socializing and engaging and I got to express myself in a very structured way so I think that is what I actually liked about acting it was never the performance side that was I was like oh yeah that's cool it was everything else about it that I really enjoyed yeah that makes a lot of sense and it's funny like now that I know more about autism and can sort of I don't know about you but uh, I feel like I have, I call it the ASD dar. Like I can totally like, I have a radar for it. I feel like I can pick people out now when I'm like, oh yeah, you're autistic. You may not know it, but I know it. Um, and you look at Hollywood and you look at a lot of actors and you're like, yeah, <laughs> I see what's going on here. I feel like autism is probably very pre prevalent in Hollywood and within the acting community, especially just because of all of that structure. And like you said, having a script and all of the things that are so like naturally um, soothing and enticing to autistic people. It's just like, it's kind of, it makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think particularly in the U S in Australia, it's, there's barely an acting industry in Australia. We have such a small, uh, population and there's not a lot of demand for original Australian content but in the US there is such a system to you 
if you want to be an actor, although there's no official way, there are plenty of options. You sort of roughly go to LA, you try and get a manager, like there are steps that you can do and that you can, if you're autistic, research and work out and follow the procedure and then go along with it. And it's, yeah, so I can see how a lot of them would be drawn to that because there is a lot of structure and security despite it being quite a precarious industry yeah yeah oh I didn't even consider that about you being in Australia because yeah you're right I guess the U.S. is different when it comes to that sort of career path um just because yeah like you said there is a lot more work here and demand for it here were you planning to come to the U.S. if you pursued acting I think eventually I was going to. I know a lot of actory friends who discuss how they are going to do it. There's, um, you may not be aware that there's a uh, US green card lottery that runs sort of every year that you just apply and you can just get a green card to the US. I think they let in two or 3,000 people a year. So I know a few people who just have apply and just think maybe that'll get, I'll just get in one year and get over there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are all sorts of different ways of like how you, and obviously there's like a, Australians work in the US, like it's not unheard of, but the, the requirements around getting the visa, there's so many like tips and tricks available online for how to do it. And then like, I looked into it and thought, that looks like a lot of work. It's a lot of like, yeah. Yeah. That's when you when the ADHD alone. kicked in and I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> you're like, hmm, I have to, uh, relocate halfway around the world that's like a pretty that's in and of itself is like a huge step yeah Yeah. have you ever been here have you been to the U.S. no not yet I think that's my that'll be my next big trip I've done Europe twice um but I haven't been overseas since 2019 so I think now that the PhD is done I definitely I really want to see the U.S. and like as much of it as possible I've like it just grown up with so much of the culture and I really want to see. Yeah. Yeah. All of it. If I can. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, if you're in California, you let me know and we can meet up in person. That would be amazing. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So let's get back to Onda Spectrum. Like what kind of queen is Onda? What's her, what's her vibe? Um, She's more of like a, I don't know, a campy comedy queen. I prefer doing like quote unquote older songs from like 90s, early 2000s. I don't tend to do too many modern tracks. Um, I prefer sort of more classic drag numbers and do ends. I guess trying to honour what drag was pre-drag race and where drag has come from, um, I guess... Uh, somewhat by default I take an academic and overly analytical view to it I really try to um not paint my face the way other queens do I don't do an overly detailed eye um one because I probably couldn't necessarily execute it but I also hadn't tried to actively avoid doing that and really keep it classic and yeah, just trying to honour the history of drag because there's oh, queer history is so difficult to come across because there's no 
it's not passed down through family lines. We have to kind of find it and create it ourselves. Um, so that's for me in drag going forward, it, I, that's what I want to focus on is trying to yeah, retain some of that history before we lose it. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, are you a drag race fan or are you sort of a person that's like, uh, it's sort of ruining drag a little bit. <laughs> um, I am. I think Drag Race as a concept is a great show. Um, I think the more recent seasons are becoming slightly too overproduced. Um, on I think both like the participants and the contestants and the producers. I think the contestants know to come in quite and not not necessarily polished but like performative like everyone's got their catchphrase and their look um and they are ready for that and then yeah you can kind of see that like production get like it's a tv show it's not a reality competition show and i think it's changing more into more scripted than unscripted which isn't like negative um i appreciate the the product that exists but yeah i think it's gained so much momentum and they don't necessarily know what to do with it they just keep trying to like keep it going and maybe they're scared that it will fade if they don't do new things each time rather than just sort of keeping it like here's what's good and we're just going to do what's good and not panic so much yeah 100% I agree with all of that that you just said it's like keep trying to up the ante each season like oh we gotta we gotta make this new or this better or this and it's like you guys had it good from the beginning though like I felt I do feel like the older seasons have something special that doesn't really exist anymore in the newer seasons so I'm a big drag race fan but also like the past few seasons have been hard for me to kind of get into and be like oh everyone like you said it's it's very polished and to me it's like too polished like I don't want it all to be that that perfect you know it's like I want to I want to see some of the 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 nitty-gritty of the drag and the struggles and the you know I don't know it's just yeah it's sort of like a mixed bag I'm a oh I'll keep watching it because I do like I love the art form of drag and it's like that's the easiest way for me to consume it. Like you said earlier, like so many drag shows, because I'm in the central Valley of California, I'm in kind of like, I'm in a city, but it's a smaller city. And, um, it's like, we have drag performers come through, there are drag shows around, but it's like, it's so late. (laughs) I'm in my forties. Like I always plan to go and I'm like, Oh, I want to support like the local Queens and all of that. But then it's like, the day rolls around and I'm like, this thing doesn't even open. Doors don't even open till 10. And then people don't even start performing till like 12. And I'm like, if I stay up past 12, I'm going to be recovering from that for like a few days. So (laughs) do you find that like, I know for me, um, navigating the, okay. So 
I guess like being out in like the club scene or the bar scene has always been kind of hard for me for many reasons as an autistic person. So that is your like realm though. How do you deal with all of all of that? Like everything that goes around with like performing in a bar or a club and the, the social aspects and all of the lights and the noise and the sights and the smells and the sounds. Are you a, are you a sensory sensitive person? Do you take a long time to recover? I just asked you 40,000 questions in a row. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's very up and down. I, maybe not so much now, but when I was a little bit younger, I really enjoyed clubbing and always have. Um, I think putting a sort of autistic understanding on it, I think the, I enjoy the sensory, like it's the, like I feel surrounded by the music. I really enjoy the, it feels quite euphoric in a way to be in that environment, to be, particularly when I know the song and I can just really relax into it and I know what's coming and I just get to enjoy being in that moment that it doesn't feel smothering. It feels comforting to sort of be surrounded in that way. Um, but I guess being in drag, I find it difficult to navigate the socializing side inside a nightclub because I, I can't like, cause I hear everything at once as most autistic people do. I can't differentiate sound. So I can't really have a conversation with someone and get to know them because I can't, despite being quite close, I cannot hear what they're saying. I can't really work out what the environment is or how to communicate with people. So I find the existing as a drag queen in a nightclub when you're not performing. And that's the part that I find really difficult to do because I don't really know what to do. And because I have um, quite resting bitch face, um, particularly in drag. And I often kind of forget that I am in drag. So I'll just sort of be standing still with no emotion on my face whatsoever and enjoying myself. Like, I'm, but I forget to show that I'm enjoying myself to other people. Um, and so I am aware that I also look very standoffish. So people don't always come up to talk to me because it doesn't look like I want to be spoken to, but I'm just sort of happy in my own space. So I find the, yeah, the socializing part quite difficult. Yeah. I don't know if that answered the question. I sort of. Yeah. No, definitely did. I relate heavily to all of that, that you just said. Um, I, for uh about oh gosh for many years in my early 20s I was actually a DJ um and I was in a big city I was in Seattle and I had the same experience as you um I really liked going out to clubs and to raves um if it was a if it was a situation that I wanted to be in if it was music that I enjoyed if there were places to go outside and maybe take a break and get fresh air and get away from the music for a minute but like you said you know it could feel very comforting and very energizing to me um but I really relate to like the perform like having to like communicate with people in that type of setting or feeling like there's a certain expectation I did start to get into like drinking and like party drugs during that time period of my life because I didn't realize it then. But now I look back and I'm like, oh, that is so I could either be more social 
Or if I was acting weird, people would just be like, oh, <laughs> she probably like ate some mushrooms or something, you know, and so it was an excuse to be like, I have an excuse to why I'm acting weird, or I can be more social most of the time. Like when I was drinking or something, it, it would be, I would have a drink or two and it's like a social lubricant. You can all of a sudden like be more open and outgoing and stuff. And that's when I started to sort of transition out of that lifestyle was when I started to be like, I don't want to drink anymore. And I don't want to do these party drugs anymore. And I started kind of not wanting to do that. And then the events became less fun. And I was like, all right, I think it's time to, to leave the DJ realm. And I was about your age. I was like 27 or 28, I think when that happened. And I was like, I think I'm done. Um, so going into it at that age, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's a different, a different experience for you, but do you feel like there are ways that your neurodivergence helps you as a performer? Because now I'm a performer in a different way. I still sometimes perform in bars and clubs and noisy, crazy places. Um, but I do feel like there are many things about being autistic and ADHD. I'm I'm ADHD as well. Um, that do sort of make me a better performer in certain ways. Do you have those things? Yeah, I think, um, and this is probably in part with um, having an acting background, but I've never been, I've been nervous going on stage, but I've never been scared of the audience going on stage. I almost have a slight degree of indifference to the audience. Like I'm just there to do what I want to do because I've decided to do it. It's not um, because I'm, like I still want them to have a good time, but if they don't love the performance, I'm like, well, okay. You also didn't pay to see it and it's at a drag show. Like what did you expect? So I'm not scared of the audience. I'm um, I'm very comfortable talking in a mic to people. I'm comfortable. I used to do um, stand-up prior to the pandemic. Um, so I've always yeah, been comfortable talking on stage um i think the my adhd really comes out on stage when i'm talking and i think people can find it's people see the humor in how i can just sort of semi panic and just start talking and going off on different tangents and trying to follow what i'm saying um so yeah i think it helps my performance because yeah i'm not terrified to be on stage um and i think it's also helped i've uh taught myself how to sew during the lockdowns um and um onda is quite known for her outfits um and i'm like i'm realizing that sewing is 100 percent my special interest it's what i've been looking for um like for my whole life i've never quite found a creative way to express myself and it's absolutely sewing it gives me um a feeling of creativity but also a feeling of control I'm absolutely a control freak I need to feel like I'm in control of things and um what I find with sewing is that almost any mistake can be fixed so you're never quite just like well I have to give up now I used to be really into baking before um and like if you mess up a cake and then put it in the oven you don't find out until it's finished um and then also you're like, well, I can't do anything now. Like I've just 
wasted all of this. Whereas for the most part, if you sew something incorrectly or anything, you can fix it. So yeah, I think the the autism side helps with that because I'm just pumping out outfits at this rate. Yeah, you're hyper, you're hyper focused on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw you just posted something on Instagram. It was like a green dress. And I was like, you made that? <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm um, trying to sort of sell outfits now. It's, the, it's a way of yeah, money in between the right. next academic gig. So I'm enjoying that. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot of drag queens who don't know how to sew. And a lot of people who aren't drag queens who would probably still buy your stuff that you made, you know, do you, do you want to focus solely on like creating things for other drag queens or do you want to sort of like branch out and maybe design for regular folks? Yeah, I think any, yeah, for anyone, it's, um, I saw something online once that was like people with ADHD aren't motivated by rewards they're motivated by curiosity and that absolutely brings very true for me because it's the problem solving of sewing that I am fascinated by I went to um, a Christmas party last week um, and it was sort of my first time sort of socializing um, with a whole bunch of different people, there's like sort of a hundred ish people in the space. And the whole night I was just looking at um, all the women's dresses and just being like, okay, so how was that made? How, how do they, where's the hem? Like, where's the seam line? Like I just was trying to work out how was it put together? So yeah, yeah, that's what I find so fascinating is the problem solving part of it. I love that. That's yeah. How very autistic (laughs) the problem solving. So can we talk a little bit about like how you came to know that you're autistic and ADHD? Like how long have you had those diagnoses? Did you get formally diagnosed? Tell, tell me. Um, I was diagnosed with autism at 25. So four years ago, and then I got the ADHD diagnosis at 27 so that was yeah two years ago now um I kind of always knew I had a lot of sort of and particularly looking back had a lot of early signs so I was a toe walker um which does help in heels now but definitely I was just I've always (laughs) been on my toes um I enjoyed swimming because I found the repetitiveness of just going up and back quite relaxing um, any sort of monotonous repetitive task I've always enjoyed um it runs in the family so my um, like along my dad's side my cousins are autistic um my grandmother definitely was but would not like the diagnosis I don't even yeah this is something I, I saw a few weeks ago the first person ever diagnosed with autism died this year so it's less than a hundred years old he was in his 70s or something oh really I oh, I didn't know that. yeah I didn't I didn't know that it was that recent so like she wouldn't have been because the it was like a few years old then like it would the access to the knowledge didn't exist yet so it's such a recent uh concept which I would like it, which is why it annoys me when people like oh there's so many people being diagnosed with autism ADHD and I'm like well yeah because we don't really know much about it 
Like you wouldn't say that about people who wear glasses because we've had glasses for what, 400 years or something. Right. Yeah. But I'm sure when people suddenly started wearing them, people were complaining, well, now everyone needs glasses. It's like, well, yeah, because we didn't have the answers, but now we do and we're developing so much more for it. Um, but that is not relevant to the question. So for me, I think why I pursued an autism diagnosis. So I went, I had been to Japan early 2019. Um, it was a very poorly planned trip. So I went on my own um, for my birthday because um, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. So I wanted to go to Universal Studios there and see the um, Harry Potter Wait, theme park. Um, so you have Universal that. Studios in Japan? Yeah, um, it's. I think it's the only other one outside of the US. Really? I had no idea. Yeah, it's... I don't know when they built it. It's not new, but yeah, there's a few, because there's the Tokyo Disneyland as well. So I think it's around that area. So yeah, I went there. Um, the trip itself was way too long. Like three weeks in the one country was too long. It was my first time being in a country where the main language was not written in it hasn't like the English alphabet, whatever the Germanic alphabet, like whatever that is. Like, and I found by the end of the trip, I was just so mentally exhausted from having to constantly work out where I am and not understanding what people were saying. I found it really difficult. Like I, like listening to people speak Japanese made me irritated because I couldn't work out the, their syntax. Like I didn't know what they were. Like I couldn't work out the pattern of the language and just trying to, understand it and yeah so I just burnt myself out by the end of the trip and got home and thought maybe we should look into why this has happened um and then they found a psychologist who um was autistic himself and went through that process and was like cool and then got it and then have spent yeah, the last four years trying to unlearn everything that I thought I knew about myself and trying to yeah, understand it better yeah yeah how how's that been going <laughs> it's getting there I still I still have a lot of shame around being autistic that's definitely still there I still kind of wish I just wasn't like I I kind of still only see a lot of the negatives to it I'm really have been struggling to reframe certain experiences as positive because it just seems like anytime I want something and it doesn't happen, I attribute it to being autistic. And it's like, well, I can't get this because of this. And yeah, that cycle sort of keeps repeating. Um, I have recently seen a new psychologist as of like five, four or five weeks ago, and I'm making a lot more progress with her so that is quite good I'm hoping I can start sort of working through a lot of that but yeah there's definitely that undercurrent of why can't I just do it like everyone else does why can't I just decide to do something why is everything such a hassle or so difficult to do yes yes so yeah 
relatable on, on the one hand, it's like, it's a relief to know, right? Because for me, it was like, oh, like so many things made sense mm -hmm. after I got my diagnosis. And I was like, this is why I do this. This is why I feel this. This is why. And so being able to like account for all those things on one hand was great. But like you just said, it's like, then it's still there. Like it's still a presence in your life where you're like, well, now I know why I do all these things, which is helpful. But like, also sometimes I just don't want to be this way. <laughs> like I'm annoying myself a lot. Um, but I guess at least now I know why. Um, so it is, it's like a mixed bag. And you said about like the shame piece, um, you know, is that related to sort of like maybe how others might perceive you or I'm curious about that. I think it's the the expectations that I know exist for people's behavior and not being able to meet the standards of yeah, general socializing. Like I'm not good at again, just framing it as that and like I'm very aware of what I'm not good at doing. And I don't ever really see the positive because I don't think that was ever explained to me I think it's different now my sister's a primary school teacher and the way that she speaks about working with kids with neurodivergence it's in like it just didn't exist in a way um when I was growing up she's so cognizant of it and has all these different ways of reframing it so that it's they don't think that what they're doing is lesser whereas that was never explained to me as a kid so I've just grown up thinking that that's the standard correct way of doing things and my way is the lesser incorrect way and if only I can work out how to get to that point I think the what I'm sort of stuck on is that I'm still trying to work out how do I fix my autism and ADHD rather than how do I accept it I think that's what I thought getting the diagnosis would do. I'd get these, I'd start medication for ADHD, then everything would just be fine. And that's not the case. And it's never going to be the case. And trying to accept that and move on to that is like my next challenge, I guess. Yeah. I don't think you're alone in that. I've definitely, you know, had that too. I've talked to a lot of other people who have that. It's sort of like a, a grieving process that you have to go through to just realizing that this isn't fixable like in a way it's comforting to be like okay this is just my neurotype and how it is but I think for me too personally there were things where I'm like oh well I guess like I'm probably just never gonna be good at this one particular thing this thing that I thought maybe I could get better at or could change about myself it's like well I think it's just how I'm wired now and you have to sort of, yeah, accepting that can be hard and it can be like, well, this is just how it is and this is just who I am and this is just how it's going to be. And uh, yeah, it's, there's a lot to it. And I think that um, it's amazing that more people are being um, recognized or however you want to say it, more, more people are recognizing their neurodivergence, getting diagnosed, stuff like that, because there is a lot more conversation around it now and a lot more resources and people talking openly about it on social media and things like that, where it can, at least you don't feel so alone, right? Where it's like, 
there are other people out there who are having the same struggle and it's okay. Um, there are a lot of us <laughs> floating around the world. Um, what about the ADHD diagnosis? So that came a little bit later. Did you suspect that one too? Um, that one I didn't. I, um, I, growing up, at least for me, ADHD was the thing that the naughty boys in class had. And that's just what I thought. Like, I didn't know what it was at all. I knew that it existed, but I, yeah, I didn't know anything. Um, I think, so I have a lot of friends still who were in the comedy community and obviously ADHD is rife in the comedy community, um, which I mean, to me is no surprise. It makes sense that there would be quote unquote, something wrong with your brain to want to pursue the dopamine hit of doing stand up, And that if you had a brain that worked differently, you would constantly want to seek that. So that to me makes sense. And I saw a lot of them talking about ADHD and I was like, oh, okay. I just sort of like looked into it one day and a lot of the symptoms I was like, oh, like I just like um, emotional regulation and like anger issues. I had no idea that was an ADHD thing. And that's absolutely something that I've always had a lot of difficulty with. I can go become quite aggressive really quickly for absolutely no reason. Um, so yeah, I sort of thought, or oh, maybe it will happen um, and went through uh, quite a convoluted process of getting it. Obviously there's a huge wait list to get appointments. I was um, quite lucky that I only had to think of like a six week wait to see a psychiatrist, but I, I know some of the clinics I spoke with had like a six month to 12 month wait list. And I think that's only increasing now um, because as I learned, not every psychiatrist can prescribe ADHD because they all have their own specialties, which like I makes sense, but also kind of doesn't make sense. Like it's, there's only, I think it's like 12 or 13 types of medication that are prescribed for the brain. Yeah. So there's not, in my opinion, after that many years of schooling, it doesn't make sense that you are that specific that you can't help a broader population. Um, yeah. I pursued the ADHD because I thought, oh, maybe it will help. And I think particularly doing the PhD is why I did it. I, had I not done the PhD, I don't think I would have seen a need for it, but I was really starting to notice that I cannot concentrate. I um, couldn't remember my writing. So I would sort of write two or three pages and I wouldn't remember what I had written before. I would like, my memory has always been quite terrible, but like, without medication, it is particularly bad. I really cannot retain information for a long period of time. Um, so yeah, I think it was the trying to do the nine to five grind of an everyday job is where it really came to light. Right. Where you were like, oh, I think there's something here. So have you, can I ask, have you started on medication for ADHD? Yes, I'm on um, Vivance. I've been taking that for on and off for about 18 months or so now. Yeah. yeah. Is Vivance one of the non-stimulant ones or is it a stimulant one? Uh, it's a stimulant one. I don't know. It's Lizdexamphetamine, I think is its chemical name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
do you find that it's helpful? Um, it is and it isn't. So as I, which wasn't explained at the time and maybe should have been, but as I now know, um, because it's a stimulant, your body gets very used to it. So at the moment, um, I'm still taking it, but it's not doing anything anymore. I've got, I'm planning, I've got a few weeks off in January. So it's, I'm going to stop taking it for that period and sort of go through the withdrawals and all of that from being so used to taking it and then letting it out of my system so that when you start taking it again, it starts working. So that's a, like a double-edged sword in that way is that it works really well at the start. And it was like, it was almost like a feeling of euphoria when I first started it because everything was just so easy. And so like, I could just so focus so quickly. Um, and then now that I'm like, okay, that's only a temporary feeling again, it's not a fix. It's just a way to manage it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely pursue medication if it's something you think will help, but it's, yeah, it's not a forever solution. It's quite temporary, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always curious to, to hear about people's experiences with ADHD medications, especially people who have both diagnoses. So in my family, my, my partner also has ADHD. Um, and both of my kids have ADHD and, my daughter has diagnosis of autism too. So she has both. Um, my son never got officially diagnosed with autism, uh, but we see it now. Like He's like, I don't know yeah. if I need a diagnosis. I just feel like we just know that it is what it is. Um, and same thing with my partner too. And I have never tried ADHD medication because I'm terrified of stimulants because I'm very sensitive to everything. And so I just feel like it might be a lot. Um, and it's been interesting, but the other three people in my family have all tried it and we've, and they've all had very different experiences, um, good and bad. Um, so it's like, I feel, and I feel like I've heard that from other people too, particularly people with both diagnoses. Um, and I think, and the psychologist who actually diagnosed me with autism was the one who also surprise diagnosed me with ADHD. I wasn't seeking that diagnosis. I was like you, I had a very specific idea of what ADHD was. And I was like, I don't have ADHD. Um, and she saw it and she was like, I I think you have ADHD too. And she had me do all the testing for that as well. And I was like, Oh, okay. Um, but she warned me, um, that sometimes people who have autism or who are autistic, um, can have a hard time with those types of medications because it will sort of like, you can focus, but then it also brings more focus to your sort of like unsavory autism traits. Like your sensory stuff will be a little bit worse and like stimming might be more of a thing. And I remember that's exactly what happened to my daughter. Um, and she had a real hard time when to take her off because she just, it just wasn't, yeah, it was like making the world too, too clear and too loud for her. I think, um, whereas my son like almost can't function without his ADHD meds. So it's like, it's so funny how different brains sort of digest medications in different ways. And I'm just always so curious about that. I would love to see like someone do like a really in-depth study on that and, be able to see like the actual statistics of of how that 
type of thing affects people, you know? Yeah, I remember I came across something recently and it was only published maybe less than 10 years ago and it was a a theory that there's like seven or eight types of ADHD Um, and it has like a different like um, with all the different types there's different ways of treating it with like stimulant non-stimulant and like other medications as well it hasn't been I sort of like took the academic route and looked looked into like the research it hasn't been cited by a lot of people I don't think it's been picked up um, as a main theory but yeah there's so much that we don't know about the brain in general like the um, anyone who says anything is hardwired in the brain does not know what they're talking about there is no evidence to say anything is hardwired and that a certain thing has to happen in a particular way um but yeah in relation to like the medication and things there's like we know it kind of works and it but we don't really know how we don't know um we don't know yeah we'll just like yeah there's so much that we uh don't understand and it's i i wonder if we can ever actually get that information because the only way that i know how would be to do mri scans of children for most of their life to see how does the brain develop and obviously that is exceptionally unethical and would never pass so until we get another way of gathering that data it's probably not going to happen so yeah yeah that's what's hard about science (laughs) is like yes Sometimes you just, the way you would have to study something just isn't something that's feasible or ethical. (laughs) And it's like, damn, I don't know if we'll ever know this thing, but you know, I don't know. We're, we're getting there as a species, humans. (laughs) Very slowly, but yes, we are. Very slowly, but very surely. Well, I've been talking to you for about an hour now, so I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but this um, conversation has been awesome. You are such an interesting person. Do you feel interesting? Um, I'm aware that I often have a different perspective to other people, and I think that is the autism and ADHD. I know that I have a very specific and niche worldview that not a lot of other people have and that I definitely see as a positive yeah yeah for sure there you go it is a positive I feel the same way um it was great seeing your face great meeting you if people are in your area you're in Melbourne Melbourne yeah yeah so if they're in your area they should come out and catch a show I know I do have a lot of listeners in Australia actually I feel like it's like in my top five places like most popular places that listen well hello fellow Australians Um, (laughs) please let me know if you think I sound Australian in this maybe they'll all disagree I'll put a poll on the Spotify um post that's like (laughs) does Onda sound Australian only answer if you're Australian (laughs) (laughs) I think you do I think it's wonderful I could talk to you all day but I won't um Thank you so much for being on the podcast. They can come out and see you where. Is there anywhere that you're performing like on a regular basis? Um, nothing 
probably somewhere along Smith Streets in Fitzroy. There's that's where most of the gay bars are. You'll find me. I don't know, roaming around there, no doubt. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I've enjoyed our conversation so much, and maybe we'll do it again sometime. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Okay, that was such a fun conversation. We love a drag queen in my house. You guys know I'm a big fan of drag. Uh, I just admire the creativity and showmanship that goes into that art form. And it was such an honor to talk to Onda and have her open up about all things drag and autism and school and neurodivergence in general and what a smart and lovely individual with such a great Australian accent, right? I I think she sounds very Australian, but you guys tell me. Anyway, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more content, you can join the Patreon. I will leave links to that in the show notes. You get one bonus episode of month with uh, Gray and I discussing a myriad of topics and you get access to the Discord server where you can meet lots of other neurodivergent lovely folks. And that is it for today. And uh, I'll talk to you guys on the next one. Bye.